Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening. You're listening to another episode of Bright Lights, Consumer Trends in Conversation with Element 54. I'm your host, Julianne Ng. In today's episode of Sustainable Futures, where we look at sustainability trends from the perspective of different industry experts, I'm excited to introduce Michael Fazio. Michael is a 20-year veteran and leader in consumer packaged goods industry who has embraced and built his expertise in sustainability. Michael is a Director of Sales and Head of Sustainability for Conagra Canada. He is here today to share his journey and thoughts towards a sustainable future. Welcome to the podcast, Mike, and thank you for being our guest today. Julianne, thank you for the opportunity to have uh, this discussion with you on, on the topic of sustainability. Um, it's something that uh, I, I'm very passionate about, and I, I appreciate that Element 54 is using this platform to highlight this uh, important topic. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I'd like to start by asking you a question about how did you get into sustainability as Director of Sustainability at Conagra? Well, it's, uh, it's a bit of a funny story. It's a long story, but I'll, I'll try to keep it uh, as short as possible. Uh, you know, I was at a bit of a, a crossroads with my 20-year professional career in consumer packaged goods. And, you know, I also have a passion around uh, conservation and nature. And ironically, I, I was on a, a flight to Montreal for a customer meeting. Uh, we know now that, uh, you know, more video conference meetings will be the preferred mode. Uh, but at the time, I guess, pre-pandemic, it was a flight to, to Montreal to meet with the customer. And, you know, I really felt compelled to, to write a letter to my leadership team about, you know, what our organization is doing to be more sustainable. And it was quite intense, uh, you know, as I, as I was uncertain if I was going to, to send it. I didn't know if I should send it or not because it was, it was a pretty heavy letter. And as I met with my customer, uh, you know, they asked me, you know, what are you guys doing to be more sustainable? And I thought, you know, and how are we adapting to our products for the future? It was a bit serendipitous. So it was, uh, it kind of, you know, triggered me to say, you know, on my way back from the meeting, you know, I hit send uh, on that crafted note that I, I wrote on the plane. And, you know, a week later, one of our senior leaders approached me and said, hey, your note reached a lot of senior people uh, within the organization. And although we do have an international sustainability team, you know, what are your thoughts on being a lead representative for, for Canada? And, you know, to be quite frank, I was blown away. I, I didn't think that that would ever kind of happen. You hear about stories about like that, but I didn't think that that would happen. And uh, for them, on my, my notion was, uh, you know, just get in there, get involved. That became my mantra. And as I had began my journey in sustainability, you quickly realize how much you don't know. And so my advice uh, is just to start and, you know, gain new knowledge. And the journey so far has been remarkable, to say the least. That's an amazing story. I'm so glad that you started something and it's fantastic that leadership took notice. For sure. It's, uh, you know, it's really good when you have an organization that supports their people, but also if there's something that they're passionate about, they really try to make an effort uh, to get you involved and, and make sure that uh, you stay engaged, right? And it was important to me and it became important to the organization to set me up for success and to also uh, address uh, this really important uh, subject. So speaking of this really important subject, here's a question that I've been asking um, some of our guests, which is, 
how do you define sustainability? And the reason why I ask it is because when we think about the general public out there, there's still a lot of confusion as to what sustainability means. So I'm curious to know how you define it. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. And I think a part of that is, is that, you know, this is a really big question and has many facets. And I think that that's why there's some, you know, confusion out there. And, and let me tell you, I, I find myself expanding and evolving my point of view, you know, as my network expands and conversations progress and they get even deeper, you know, one of my big aha moments is that sustainability uh, does have a very broad scope. And I think that's a part of the challenge. And, you know, when I first kind of got into it, I knew there were many stakeholders, uh, obstacles, both financial and operational. But what struck me is that, you know, sustainability needs to go beyond economics uh, and be ingrained in values and character in order for it to progress at the rate it needs to. Um, I'm a true believer that you, you can have economic progress alongside sustainability. Um, there may be some short term pain with doing that. But we need to be in it in the long term versus, uh, you know, short sighted cost impacts. So I, I would rather position them as, you know, in terms of cost impacts, I'd rather position them as investments versus cost, which I think is more appropriate because uh, I do believe in, in a triple bottom line as well and that, that it's achievable. Uh, but to tell you the truth, I sometimes struggle with the term sustainability. You know, its root really means to hold or maintain. The reality is, is that we're past that point of only needing to sustain the earth, uh, but rather we need to restore it. So restoration uh, has come has to come before sustainability. So the concept of net positive uh, impact is something I try to reinforce in my conversations, both personally and professionally. Um, you know, not to get too too much on a pestle, but but if we rob the earth uh, bare or push the earth beyond its limit ecosystems fail. If ecosystems fail, farming fails. If farming fails, industry fails because we don't have the ingredients to make products. So the reality is inaction today is not really an option. Um, you know, investing in sustainable practices is really an investment for creating a stable and I think the more appropriate term is perpetual future. So, you know, never harvesting more than the earth can regenerate and not creating garbage we can't reasonably manage so it doesn't enter into our natural environment, uh, you know, uh, whether it be plastics or man-made chemicals. Thank you for that. I really appreciate the way you've defined it in the sense that the root you're saying, it really means to hold or maintain, but you're right. We are like, we're way past that point. And I like how you brought up this concept of restoration. What do you see as some of the barriers to a sustainable future? Um, there, there are there are quite a few barriers, but uh, you know, there's no doubt that there's many barriers to a sustainable future. But I'll cover up a few that I believe can resonate with many and uh, the general, I guess, public. Uh, first, uh, I believe it's important to make the topic uh, of sustainability more approachable, cool, and fun. Quite frankly, I, I guess you could say. <laughs> We need a bit of a PR campaign on, on practical ways for people to get involved. So although we wanna, I wanna highlight you know, the severity of what we're up against, the reality is that we need to engage everyday people to make even small changes in their lives and routines because it does add up. Just like dollars in the bank, pennies in the bank, 
you know, these practices, if everybody engages in them, can really add up and make an impact. So something as simple as, you know, turning off the shower when you, sh when you soap up or eating less meat or planting a vegetable or bee friendly garden. You know, although these are, are softer approaches, the reality is, is that, you know, we really need to recalibrate societal values. Um, and this is a start. It's a start for those who are, are apprehensive about getting involved or those who aren't really thinking about it because it's too far away from, you know, how they live today. I think secondly, you know, is that, you know, we need to recognize that sustainability is really not a, a new concept. It's, it's merely something that has been forgotten by modern society uh, and overshadowed by uh, progress. And I, I use progress in, in quotes, right? And, and it's, you know, we're going after the shiny new thing or that advanced technology, but we're forgetting the foundation that has built man over, you know, millions of years. And so I think it's most appropriate to, you know, uh, credit uh, people who live off the land and indigenous people of the world with the wisdom that they've had for generations, right? Sustainability has been ingrained in their livelihoods, cultural heritage, and knowledge resulting in that strong connection uh, to nature and earth. So uh, one of the things I, I will say, if you haven't seen the documentary uh, Honeyland, I highly recommend uh, it. It's a video and a documentary about uh, Europe's, one of Europe's last wild beekeepers. And it, it shows that we need to strengthen our own connection to the earth and evaluate the impact of our actions in everyday life and the way that we produce and consume uh, as a civilization. Um, another one is, I do believe that uh, from a barrier perspective, I believe that tech technology consumption and sitting too long in front of the screen has disconnected people from the earth and from nature. You know, uh, not that it's a bad thing. I think that the communication aspect of it is, is really positive in bringing people together, but there, you know, as with anything too much of a, of a good thing can be bad for you. Right. So we, at home, we limit uh, screen time for our children to ensure that they get outside. And it's amazing to watch kids connect with the earth and engage with the natural world uh, like bugs and wildlife, uh, going to a river and all that fun stuff. I, I, I remember actually growing up with, um, you know, a, a quick story that I, I want to share with listeners is, you know, my 11 year old Lila was finally allowed to go to the park by herself, of course, with some friends. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit tricky for me because I'm like, a little bit protective and, and I want to make sure that my kids are being safe and we live in the city. So going to the park by herself was a pretty big deal. And, you know, 8 PM rolls around and Lila wasn't back uh, from the park then 8:30, and then 8:45. still lots of light cause we're, we're in summer, but you know, I got concerned. Uh, and so I, I take my bike and I ride out to the park and I get to the park and my daughter sees me and just casually, Hey pop. I said, you know, it's like almost 9 PM, right? And, and as I'm talking to her, she, she interrupts me. She says, yes, yeah, but dad, we lost track of time. I showed the other kids the, the giant mulberry tree in the park, and I showed them that the berries were edible. And she goes, dad, they didn't believe me at first. But then when I ate them, they all began to climb the tree and pick them. And as we're having this conversation, I looked up into the tree, and there's five kids in this tree sitting on branches eating mulberries. And uh, one kid said to the other, this is the best day ever. The other kid 
said, this is the most epic day, right? And I, I couldn't believe it. I just started laughing. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that you don't usually hear this uh, when your kids are getting sucked into a screen, right? This is the most epic day ever. You kind of see them fully absorb, right? So this interaction with the earth, I think, is critical for us as human beings to connect and to be in touch with uh, what's going on around us from a, a nature perspective. So I think that reconnecting with nature in this way and getting away from technology uh, occasionally is a, is a good thing, right? And uh, I think we need to instill that um, with this next generation, especially who's growing up with this level of intensity that, that technology brings, right? Uh, another barrier that we know that needs to, is that, you know, we all know what needs to be done, but the reality is it's difficult to organize and coordinate the sheer number of stakeholders. Um, so that's why, you know, I'm really pleased to see international efforts like the Paris Accord and organizations like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and Science-Based Target Network. Uh, these are huge step forwards and you can see the industry is really getting involved with these organizations uh, to help to facilitate that change. And, these are coming to the forefront even more and at a more intense rate, which I'm really happy to see. I got a couple more barriers. And so uh, the, the next one is, is kind of a, a tricky one, but money. Um, it's, it's kind of what got us into trouble, to be candid. But ironically, it, it might be the way uh, we get to the solution. Um, in, in reality, you can't uh, breathe it. You can't eat it. And it sure won't protect you from a, a natural disaster. So, you know, when I think about, you know, what are some of the sticking points, it's really convincing uh, organizations to make those investments. So ideally, when you're thinking about sustainability, we would really need to start this from scratch, like a startup mindset, because there, there is, we don't know what the future outcome is of these investments necessarily. Right. So a startup mindset is really, I think, required for this. And and it's a hard thing to do when you have uh, deeply established industry and business and processes. The reality is we need more data and insights that that influence business decisions that allow us to work from within the system. And I think that as we as we have more people with skill sets to be able to you know, influence the system from within, uh, I think that it can be very, very helpful into, into creating change that we need in order to, to create more sustainable uh, practices. So more su simply put, we need to build business cases that are going to unlock investment uh, to accelerate sustainable business practices across industries. I have a question related to your mention of data and insights and how they can influence business decisions. Do you have any examples? And again, they don't have to be really um, specific to the organizations you work for, but just in general, any examples of successful ways that this has been used? Yeah, I think that you know when you when you think about the drivers of business and industry today, it's it's really around you know driving your profitability, driving your net sales, and and consumer engagement within the products that you create. And so when we think about data and creating business cases, uh, it's going to rely on, well, are people going to be receptive to it? Does the investment give us an ROI? So if we make an investment in sustainability, is it going to resonate with key stakeholders? 
factors. Of course, there's the element of we need to do what's right for the environment. And I think that there is no question in any organization's mind that they need to do that. But the current businesses and practices in place require us to give that business case as to why. So it could either be you know, accelerated sales because more people are going to want to engage with your product because you're taking sustainable practices. It could be how do you how do you ingrain sustainability into your into your innovation processes, for instance. So if you have an innovation process within uh, an organization where you're creating a new product, how do you make sure that sustainability is a part of those uh, business decisions and and uh, I guess uh, processes and and I think that really getting those involved, getting those processes uh, to have sustainability as an element of those business decisions will be critical. And it's really like I mentioned uh, with data, it's going to be about operational efficiency. Can you create operational efficiency and also create sustainability? So you have cost savings as well as. Uh, sustainable practice. I think th- that's where that sweet spot is as we start to influence those decisions uh, from a data standpoint. Great. I, I agree. There is that sweet spot and underneath it all, like you said, you know, money, it's one of the, the things that may have gotten us into the situation, but it's also a way out. And I think the just the fundamental desire and it makes sense, right, for, for organizations to make money and be profitable as long as we can find ways to create sustainability in terms of processes that then have a positive impact on efficiencies as they relate to cost, there will be appetite for that. Yeah, and, and one example that I will use is, uh, you know, ConAgra at, at, uh, in their facilities and operations, they really put sustainability uh, to the forefront. And I'll give the team credit there. And you know, they recently invested in uh, solar panels to power one of the plants in the U.S., and it was a massive investment. Uh, but they know in the longer term, yeah, up front, you're going to pay a little bit of money. Longer term, it's good for the environment, but there, eventually there's going to be a cost savings there from an energy cost uh, perspective. So I think that with investments, we can't be short-sighted. Uh, if there's a longer-term horizon of a payout in ROI, that might be the case, but I think that it's worth it uh, in the long run, the same way we would manage our personal finances, right? If you're if you're looking at making your home more sustainable or more energy efficient, yeah, it costs you a bit up front, but you're going to be able to recoup those costs uh, in the future. And I think that if businesses are in it for the long haul, they're able to make those uh, those decisions as well. Yes, and that goes back to one of your earlier points about how it's um, important to balance the Know, obviously, obviously the short-sighted type of goals or the more short-sighted type of goals relative to longer-term ones. And, and the last barrier, and this one is a bit personal to me because uh, I think I kind of went through it and it, it, it revolves around imposter syndrome. So a lot of people who haven't gotten in, involved in sustainability but are kind of interested in it, you know, I think that this is one of the things that people kind of feel like, is this really me? Is this a part of who I am or a part of my character? So when I first you know, got involved, I didn't have uh, expertise in this area, right? And when I would meet people in the discipline, I would preface all my conversations, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a sustainability expert, but I have an opinion on it, right? And you have to get rid of that notion that you aren't the expert or you're not qualified to get involved because the idea that somebody else is going to solve the issues and the problem is a false narrative. You can't 
you can't just sit back. You need to take action and, you know, get involved. I think that there's a lot of people uh, that have a unique skill set and expertise to take action, you know, whether it's big or small. And if we all pull on the rope at the same time, I, I do believe, you know, we can, we can move mountains, right. But not, not literally, of course, uh, we want to keep the mountains where they are, you know, we're sustainable, but to solve the issue, we need to use that same level of energy, creativity, and ingenuity against sustainability as we have against, you know, industrial and technological advances that, that brought us here today. And, and I think that uh, everybody has, everybody in this world living today has an accountability uh, to our earth and to future generations. And you have skill sets. And, and that's why I say like, what brought us here today, we can use that same level and that same skill set to, to get us out of it. Same as we talked about, you know, money getting us into the issue, it will uh, get us out. And I think it's the same thing with human resources and people and, and just mindset. And I think that's kind of the last one that I wanted to highlight for today. So that's quite a uh, list of barriers there, but I hear positive in each one of them that you've outlined. Although they exist, there's certainly ways around them. And you're certainly, based on everything you've described so far, not suffering from imposter syndrome anymore. Tell us a little bit about your personal and professional interest in sustainability and how you got to be the expert that you are now. Yeah, absolutely. Like at a very young age, I was always uh, intrigued by nature and the world around me. I remember going to forests close to our neighborhood where there were grass and wetlands and we would catch grasshoppers, praying mantises, frogs, tadpoles. And we'd go out with our friends on the bikes and, and we'd hang out there for hours on end. And it's like, okay, come home. When the street lights come on, that's when it was time to go home. So, you know, it's kind of unfortunate because those forests are long gone now and lost to development. So I guess a part of me still holds on to that feeling and, and connection with nature and that love for nature. And and that's really, you know, where my interest really has started. But I also think that nature is just a part of my heritage um, in general. My 95-year-old grandmother still lives off the land uh, in the Nebrodi Mountains in Sicily. She harvests her own food, takes care of chickens, goats, pigs. She has milk, uh, eggs, and meat uh, from all of these things that she she raises naturally and organically. and you know, growing up, my parents would bring back olive oil uh, when they, from their trips to Sicily and say, you know, this is your grandmother's olive oil. And as a teenager, I did, didn't really grasp that concept. I thought, oh, yeah, my grandmother bought this at some store somewhere. And this is the one that she uses kind of thing. And as I visited her in my, in my 20s, I realized that, wait, wait, what? This is not just bought from a store. This is actually her olive oil from 30 olive trees that she has on her property that my family picked, brought to a mill and pressed. Uh, and it kind of, it blew my mind, right? And it's kind of backwards when you think about it. Like my first instinct as a teenager was that this must've been purchased versus that somebody actually grew, they, the family grew this from their own land naturally and picked it and harvested it and uh, pressed it. So, you know, I try my best to instill this knowledge with my, my kids. Uh, you know, I too have a garden and four cool as heck urban chickens uh, in the city of Toronto. So kids come from the neighborhood into our backyard to check them out, eat berries from our garden. And, you know, uh, a really proud moment for me um, was that when Uncle Daniel, so my kid's uncle asked, you know, 
you know, where do tomatoes come from? And he was expecting to hear, you know, a grocery store, of course. And my five-year-old looked up at him and said, how do you not know this? The garden. And, um, you know, that's really what inspires me to keep going. And I do believe that, you know, professionally, you can have a true triple bottom line, good for the earth, good for people and good for business. And so I draw, uh, I'm drawn to the challenge of this. And I think because I, I am a business person as well as a, a sustainably minded person, it's a huge problem to solve, but I think it's not just up to our children to solve. We're accountable, as I mentioned. So we need to take that accountability seriously, but I am really drawn to the challenge of it. I think it's a problem to solve, but I think it is solvable. And so that really what, uh, what gives me the interest in sustainability. What are some best-in-class examples of sustainability that you've seen around the world? And these can be across any industry. Israel uh, is one that uh, that came that I came across in, in a lot of the readings that, that I've been doing. And you know, Israel is widely considered uh, the world leader in, in water recycling, uh, despite its uh, arid climate. And you know, in Canada we have an abundance of water and abundance of resources, but I think there's something to be learned. So even if you have an abundance of a specific, uh, a specific thing, you know, uh, to have that efficient water conservation that Israel does, you know, where they're actually recycling 90% of uh, their wastewater. I think that regardless of whatever uh, level of, of, I guess, natural resource that you have, you should be implementing these. So with, Israel's drip irrigation technology that they have, many far farmers now use 35% less water compared to like surface or sprinkler ir irrigation. So we can all take a page from that, I think. And there is offsets and operational cost effectiveness, as I mentioned before, in these types of sustainable pro uh, pro practices. And again, it's a long game, uh, upfront investment for longer term gain, but I think it will, will help. And, you know, one that I'll, I'll highlight Along that vein uh, is for ConAgra. Uh, our Dresden facility had one individual to really make an impact. And with the goal of reducing water usage at our Dresden uh, plant, an employee noticed that there was a, a, a water loss in a section of the flumes that transport our uh, produce. Uh, using available scrap metal, like from the site somewhere, they made some slight adjustments to the flume flow it actually reduced the spilling of some water and that simple change actually reduced water consumption by 33,000 uh, gallons per day. And it's a seasonal uh, pack that we do with our, our tomatoes and uh, it saved about 1.4 million gallons of water. And it's about 2% of that total water usage. So if you have, so the cost savings weren't astronomical, but this was a change that cost nothing. And it was a creative solution that was brought about by an individual. And so I say, even if you're sustainable or not, it can come from anywhere. Being an engineer, use that uh, skill set to get these costings. So I guess for me, there's like three key takeaways from an example like that is, you know, how you, one person can make a difference uh, by considering sustainability in your everyday decisions, uh, both professionally uh, and personally. And it's really creativity over cost. You don't need major investments to have that positive impact. It's about thinking differently uh, than we have in the past. And we're seeing that really emerge um, even with technology. 
people thinking differently or finding new solutions and, and, and really being great problem solvers. And I think the third piece to this example is that they repurposed materials. They didn't have to buy a new material to find a solution. They actually leveraged something that was in there. So there's a double impact there of not sending that scrap metal to a, a, a waste management facility or a landfill. So I think that's a really great example of how creativity can really have an impact uh, to sustainable efforts. I love that example. I think uh, these type of examples should be broadly shared because it does show how one individual can make a meaningful difference. Because if everybody were more likely to be thinking that way, then just imagine what a huge difference this could make. Absolutely. It's, uh, it, it, gives me, it gives me, you know, hope that uh, people are going to agree in that. And that's why I say, you know, everybody should be getting involved. And it needs to be more approachable, right? And I think that people got to get rid of the, not, I, I would say stigma, but it's not really a stigma, but they got to get rid of the notion that sustainability is someone else's problem. You got you to ingrain it into your day-to-day to have that impact. So you've given us some great examples of best-in-class um, initiatives or efforts towards sustainability. What do you see as some of the next big trends related to sustainability? Yeah, I think the, the next big trends, uh, you know, the theme of net positive regeneration, I, I think it is a big one. And it's, uh, it, uh, you know, I wish I thought of that, but I think that, you know, net positive is a big uh, trend that I think is going to have a, an impact on the way we think about sustainability. So I think that people are starting to migrate there and it's a, it's a newer concept, but I think that that's going to be the next big thing is that, okay, we now need to replenish what we took. Uh, to begin with, and that perpetual future, the idea of perpetual future uh, is going to be big and uh, low greenhouse gas emission diets. So you're seeing a lot of plant-based uh, get out there, people, you know, trying to reduce their footprint from a, from a diet perspective, uh, I think will be another one. Uh, technology monitoring, I think this is really, really cool. So there's technologies out there uh, that use RFID or um, measure weather patterns or water absorption in the soil. So a lot of farming practices are really starting to move into this technological age, which I think can help from a, a resource uh, use standpoint and to, to see where's that waste actually happening uh, within our system. So I think that, you know, sustainable and natural farming is making a big, uh, a big resurgence and, you know, renewable energy I think will be another uh, big trend. And I, I think more so than a trend, I think it's it's actually a new, it's an emerging industry, right? And, and we're starting to see that with wind power and solar and so forth. And uh, I think what I find really interesting and, and I'm trying to wrap my head around it is smaller housing uh, where people are living in these micro homes and living a simpler life, but saying like, I'm way happier doing this. And this has an impact both economically and environmentally. Um, so I think that that's a, that's a big trend that I think that is, it's interesting and I hope it grows and, you know, hopefully we can see that happen a little bit more. And, uh, you know, the other piece I would say is uh, uh, monetization uh, of the actual industry. So we talked about profitability and, and I think that um, you know, sustainability uh, starts to to become more important, more critical, it's going to actually emerge as an industry in itself. And that's going to take over a lot of legacy things, right? We talk about disruptors in technology, 
Uh, this is really a disruptor in operations. And I think sustainability will be that because of that long-term benefit that we talked about and the eventual uh, our return on investment that this could bring for us as a, as not just from a business perspective, but also as uh, from an earth perspective and uh, regeneration. That's fascinating that uh, you see it, sustainability as emerging as an industry in and of itself. I think that's the first time I hear that and it, it makes total sense based on the way you framed it. Thank you. And uh, you know, it's uh, you put a lot of mind time to these things and, and try to figure out where are the, the areas that you can influence. And, and I, again, uh, Julian, I thank you for, for allowing me to have a little bit of a forum to, to talk about some of these ideas. I'm hoping that there's a lot of listeners and I, I'm sure there are that are going to be able to engage and connect with this and, and maybe this will inspire others to, to get involved uh, as well. So thank you for that. Who do you think has the greatest responsibility when it comes to sustainability? So is it the government? Is it industry, individuals and why? It's all three. But if I do have to pick one, <laughs> uh, I would say individuals because it encompasses all three by virtue, right? Uh, there, there shouldn't be any separation, to be honest. And if individuals take responsibility, then naturally it's, it's gonna lead to individuals in government and in industry. And there is no us and them. Uh, and I think that that's a, a, that could, I mean, maybe that's the other barrier, right? Is that there's separation between this potentially today and we need to all come together. And I think it has to be a we. And as individuals, you know, we need to educate ourselves on how the system moves and what incense organizations and government to action quickly. And when we understand these points of friction uh, or acceleration, we can address them more directly versus, uh, you know, looking at sustainability as this massive thing that's difficult to get our arms around and conceptualize. And I think because there's so many different stakeholders and so many different opinions, it becomes hard to bring these uh, these things together, but I, I think it's the individual. I would think many people would say, well, it's individuals because they're the masses. It's everybody everywhere. I like how you've described that it's the individuals because they, in fact, encompass all, all three, right? The individual is someone that is working in an industry, someone that's working in the government. So when you get the right mindset in each person, then you would expect that mindset to then ladder up through to the other organizations such as industry and the government. For sure. And, you know, it doesn't mean saying the individual doesn't mean that we don't work together, right. Or collaborate together. It just means that we all need to have that accountability in our mind and accountability is a part of my character. And, you know, we, like we kind of got us here, so we got to get ourselves out of this too. So and we're all accountable for it. And, I thank you for, for really framing that up well. It's, it's, we all need to work together and, and, and really bringing this forward, but uh, it starts with wanting to make that action as an individual and, and contributing over that. Just as we wrap up, Mike, any advice that you would give to companies who are just starting to embark on sustainability efforts or to companies who are struggling to make things happen quickly enough? Um, yeah, you know, I think this is a really great question. And the reality is that none of us can really make things happen quickly enough. Um, you know, but for those of you who are just getting started, you know, given that there's a lot of people in the industry and in the world that have already started this process, you know, there's a level of humility involved in just getting started or being a late adopter. 
But the important thing is just start. You're never too late to, to, to begin and commence this journey. So just start, get out there. If you need support, there are government funded agencies and nonprofit groups that are ready and willing to help. You know, find a network uh, in your industry that you can join or collaborate uh, with industry peers. It's really important to just to get involved and you'll find that, you know, one door will lead to another and you'll begin to be involved more and more and growingly uh, as you engage uh, in the network and with uh, with people that are like-minded on sustainability. Um, you know, I read an article that talked about sustainability efforts and how, you know, some companies were sta staging their efforts or staggering their efforts, uh, like reduced emissions of X percent by 2035. Uh, and, you know, what this article predicted is that companies that can commit to 100% and really come with an overhaul and commit to 100% versus a smaller percentage in stages, they're going to win in the long run. You know, from an ec economic and operations um, standpoint, and also if you can do that ahead of legislation, even better. You know, the, the best analogy I can, I can give is uh, a rundown car. You can either replace parts and keep on replacing parts until you have a new car, or you can just buy uh, a new car. Right, preferably electric, uh, but you want something that's going to be reliable and complete, and that really uh, gets you all the way to bright in terms of of uh, getting to zero emissions and uh, regeneration, uh, as we talked about before. But in the long run, replacing parts along the way could be actually more uh, cost prohibitive or more expensive. Um, this is a big debate, and you know this is not a solve for today, but. It's more to open people's minds to the possibility of rapid change in this area and what it would take. But uh, for me, it's, it's all about getting started and at least putting yourself out there, uh, no matter what stage uh, on this journey your company or you as an individual are at. That's great advice, Mike. I really appreciate all of your valuable insights today. Thank you again so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Julianne. This was a real pleasure. In summary, here are my three key takeaways from the discussion with Mike. Number one, Mike sees several barriers to sustainability, including the need to make it more approachable, the scale of coordination needed because of the number of stakeholders involved, and not surprisingly money. But the good news is that he's optimistic. With each barrier he's mentioned, there are solutions and the challenge itself can be part of what gets people engaged. Takeaway number two, Businesses should encourage and reward creativity for individual efforts as it relates to sustainability. Creativity has a big role to play in finding solutions, and creativity doesn't always have to cost much or anything at all. Mike gave the great example at Conagra's local Ontario plant, where an engineer repurposed scrap metal that would have otherwise gone to landfill and helped to reduce the plant's water consumption significantly. And takeaway number three. We need to hold ourselves accountable for what Mike calls the true triple bottom line. We need to do what's good for the earth, good for people, and good for business. We can't just leave it to the next generation to solve. If every individual recognizes their role in solving the global issue of sustainability, then even the smallest personal actions, multiplied across millions, can have a meaningful impact. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for new episodes with other experts.